think. <laughs> Welcome everybody here today. I uh, got someone I want to introduce you to, Kurt and Jennifer, if you guys would go ahead and come out. This is Kurt and Jennifer Witten. Uh, Kurt is our newest addition to the staff. In fact, this past Monday was his first day and uh, invited him to come out so you could see their faces. Kurt will be sharing the message next Sunday. Um, give you an opportunity to say hi. Hi. <laughs> now we are uh, we're, we're thrilled to be here. Uh, it's been a long last couple of weeks with the transition getting across the country, but uh, we're excited to be here and um, excited to share with you next week. And uh, I know in the first service, Brad hyped me up saying that uh, it'd be four times better than what he's going to say this week. Um, I only guarantee two times, so hopefully it's not, uh, hopefully, hopefully he's not overselling me a little bit. So we're excited to be here and, and looking forward to getting to know uh, all, of your, all of your names and faces, uh, and hopefully very soon. All right, very good. So wanted you to see their faces so when you see them in the hall, you know who you're bumping into, okay? Is, is now when you're going to sing? Is, uh, yeah. Okay, later, okay. <laughs> All right, thanks guys for coming out. Appreciate it. I do not know a whole lot about vineyards, um, grapevines, stuff like that. I didn't grow up in the midst of that kind of uh, stuff, and I obviously never worked um, in a place that involved grapevines. Now, don't get me wrong, I've eaten my share of grapes and raisins. Uh, I certainly like those. But it really wasn't until recently that I was getting ready to, to dive into this short series of messages that's based on John chapter 15 that I decided, you know, I really ought to uh, uh, become more aware you know, of some of the details regarding vineyards and grapevines and some of this. One of the things that I was reading in multiple sources is that the world's oldest grapevine is located just outside of London, England. Some of you maybe are already familiar with this. It's called the Great Vine. Um, and it's located in a place called Hampton Court Palace. And they date this back, and they say that it is well documented as far as how old this is. They date it back to 1768. That's how long this grapevine has been growing and thriving um, and being pruned and all the stuff that we've talked about in preceding Sundays. Uh, this was back when King George III was sitting on the throne. This was back before the United States was a thing. There was no United States, you know, when this particular grapevine got started. Just to give you an idea, besides its age, of its uh, size, the circumference of the base of the vine is 13 feet so if you think about that and how big of a vine this is, the longest branch is just over 120 feet. And for those of you that always measure bigger differences than a foot or two uh, with football, you know, in mind, almost half of a football field, 40 yards is how long we're talking, uh, the longest branch being. It had several uh, branches that are over 100 feet. The average crop is over 600 pounds of grapes. You know, so, so this, this is really uh, something incredible. Like I said, they say it is the world's oldest. And right about the time you start making that kind of a claim, you know what's going to happen. There's going to be some others out there. And sure enough, when I was Googling it, because I wanted to see some pictures of this thing, I began to see that there were others that were claiming to be older. In fact, in Slovenia, there is a grapevine that they say is over 500 years old. And they actually, um, part of their support for that is a painting that is definitely accepted as being right at 500 years old. And this particular grapevine is in that painting. 
And so that's part of the evidence they, they give. But you know how that works. Anytime you start claiming something is the biggest or the best, there's going to be someone else that comes along. I mean, just think about the obvious example. You know, for all of us that live in Kansas, you know, our pride, what we boast to all of our relatives that live out of state about, you know, is Cocker City, the world's biggest ball of twine, right? I mean, that's, we all talk about that all the time because that's, that's uh, something we take great pride in. Well, lo and behold, up in Minnesota, in a town called Darwin, they say they got a bigger ball of twine. Those frauds. All right. <laughs> but there's always going to be somebody claiming to have something older or something bigger. And, but think about this for a moment. Regarding this one over near London, the longest branch, just over 120 feet long. And they say that it's still producing good fruit and it's producing a lot of fruit. But you know, the key in the reading that I've done, the key really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the length of the branch, whether it's a shorter or whether it's a longer one. It has everything to do with the connection between the branch and the vine. That is what will spell success for a branch. And so whether it's 120 feet or whether, whether a branch is 10 feet, you know, it, what really matters the most is the connection. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. And so I'm going to refresh your memory one last time by reading this. The vine and branches. John chapter 15. Here's the way it reads. I am the true vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, it probably is pretty obvious I was emphasizing a particular word. In the translation, the Holman's Christian Standard Bible that I was reading from, it is translated remain. It is found nine or ten times in that passage. And that has everything to do with why I've entitled today's message what it is, staying connected. Because that is what that word is referencing. is is talking about the branch's connection to the vine and how important that is. And so Jesus kept emphasizing it over and over and over. So much hinges on the branch remaining, staying connected. Some translations abiding in the vine. So we're going to talk about that. Before I get into talking about how we go about staying connected, the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about some of the benefits of being connected because I find personally that that is um, a source of motivation for us. And so let's be motivated a bit because it's found right there in the words of Jesus. It tells us about how four things will happen if we do this, if we stay connected 
to the vine. Stay connected to Christ. Number one, you will bear fruit. Now, we talked about that last Sunday. If you were not here or did not listen online to last Sunday's message, you need to because that was something that was equally emphasized as what we're talking about today, about, you know, uh, remaining in the, the vine. Well, last week, it was fruit. Fruit is found all through that passage I just read. And, and uh, um, a couple of the key verses, for example were verses 4 and 5, where he says, Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And that, that's just a sample of two of the verses that are talking about fruit and emphasizing fruit. The interesting thing that I find when I read John 15, is um, being fruitful is never commanded in the passage. It never says, go forth and bear fruit, you know. It, 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 it does not, in the original language, it is not found in the form of a command in regards to fruit. However, this concept that we're talking about in today's message about abiding in the vine, remaining in the vine, that very much so is found, you know, as an imperative, a command that we need to be doing, that we need to focus in on. See, the, the thought is, and I kind of touched on this a little bit last week, is that you and I as followers of Christ, you know, we cannot manufacture fruit on our own. No matter how hard we try. I mean, we, we can, you know, we, we maybe in a sense, we can superficially kind of create some short-term fruit-like results in our life. But the problem is that doesn't have any staying power. And that is what the Lord is looking for because in the passage I just read, it specifically says fruit that will last. That is what God is looking for in our lives. And so if we're just by willpower trying to uh, produce, you know, fruit, it really doesn't work that way. It's through the connection with Christ that fruit then becomes inevitable. Last week we talked about some of the types of fruit, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but um, like fruit involves good deeds. You know, remember I told you about how Peter uh, nine or ten years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you know, he was asked to kind of share some thoughts with Cornelius, a Gentile, who wanted to hear the gospel message. And so when Peter started describing Jesus, where did he begin? He began not with the crucifixion, not with the resurrection. You know, he began with the fact Jesus went around doing good. That was one of the first things that came to Peter's mind, that he went around doing good. And you know, that is a form of fruit. And as Christians, we are to be bearing fruit and that being part of it, that we kind of live our lives in such a way that the radar is on spotting needs around us, you know, whether it be people that are a part of our extended family or be people we work with or maybe people that we hardly know at all, that a need presents itself, and we do what we can to rise to the occasion and meet that need because that is the kind of life Jesus lived. And, and if we are remaining in the vine, we're remaining in Christ, then we're going to have that kind of fruit. We also talked about new converts, you know, influencing other people to Christ. This was one of the reasons that in 1 Peter it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for why the hope that you have, why you have it. You know, we, we are to always be ready for the opportunity when we can have an influence on someone, you know, in directing them toward Christ. That is a form of fruit. Another form of fruit is the obvious passage that most of us think of immediately, and that is Galatians chapter 5, where it says, the fruit of the Spirit, and then what did it list out? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And really, when you break it down and look at it, that's the character of Christ. That the fruit of the Spirit, which the the Spirit of God will develop in your life and in my life when we stay connected to the vine, is we'll begin to resemble more and more Christ. We'll be looking more like him in our character. So that's one of the the things that will happen um, if, if we stay in the vine is we will bear fruit. Secondly, you will pray more effectively. Now, this wouldn't necessarily be something you would automatically think would be associated with this, but yet Jesus specifically references it in verse 7. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you. That's an interesting statement. Ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you. Now, before you look at that as simply being a blank check and allow your imagination to start running with it, kind of like a genie in the bottle, you get three wishes, ask for whatever you want. You know, before you start thinking along those lines, consider this is being being said in the middle of the context of us abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, continuing, staying with Christ. And when you do that, that'll have an impact on you. Namely, in view of this topic, your prayers will begin to look different. Whereas initially, your prayers may have been more me-oriented, more self-absorbed. You may have prayed more in selfish sort of ways. But, but the more that you abide in Christ, the more you remain in Christ, the more you kind of step outside of that of always thinking of me first, and you begin being more kingdom-minded. It's kind of like the model prayer that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Not my will, but your will. Well, that's the later prayer that Jesus said. He said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of the Lord's Prayer. That that's part of the mentality, that's part of the mindset that we have as we grow in Christ, as we continue in him. So we're not thinking, you know, first and foremost about ourselves. No, we're thinking more about the kingdom of God and what it is that, that is pleasing to God. And that causes me to think of this passage way back in the Old Testament because all of this isn't really that much different than this verse in Psalm 37, verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's very similar to what Jesus is saying here in John 15. I remember when my older brother first became a believer many years ago, and uh, boy, he saw this, and he was like naming it and claiming it. You know, he, he just immediately gravitated, especially towards the second half of that verse, where it says, he will give you the desires of your heart. And the thing that I shared with Mike, I said, I said, Mike, you gotta, you gotta realize what, what is being stated initially in the verse, because the way you're looking and interpreting it is very much me-oriented. And that's not what this verse is saying. The verse is saying, delight yourself in the Lord. And the idea there is that, that your life revolves around pleasing the Lord. You're all about putting a smile on God's face. That is your orientation now as a believer. And in view of that, your desires are going to be lining up with God's desires because you're wanting what is pleasing in God's eyes. See, and that's pretty much what, what Jesus is saying here in, in John, 17, or John 15. So, so your prayer life kind of takes a change, but uh, in the process of it, uh, your prayers become more effective. They are answered more frequently because you're, you're praying more in line with what God's will is. The third thing that we see is you will experience fullness of joy. The very last verse of what I read Verse 11, you know, states this. Let me show it to you in a different translation that I think does a good job of of, uh, phrasing it differently, but yet really conveying the thought. It's the New Century Version. It says, I have told you these things so that you can have the same joy I have. 
and so that your joy will be the fullest possible joy. What are these things? It's everything that preceded it. That you need to remain in, in the vine and you'll produce fruit and God my Father will prune you and you'll produce even more fruit. It's all of that stuff. Jesus says, I've told you all of this so that you can have the joy I have. And so your joy can be up to the brim, can be full. The actual word there is a word that can be translated perfect or complete. Your joy can be maxed out is kind of the idea that's being talked about. Some people look at this, you know, as far as the Bible is concerned and everything, you know, regarding church and Christianity, and all they see is rules. It's rules, rules, rules. It's just uh, legalistic drudgery. And they kind of view God as a result as being some kind of a celestial killjoy. But the reality of the matter is that's not the way the Bible depicts God. The prophet Isaiah did a good job in, in what he said in chapter 48. It's one of my favorite verses that's found in the Old Testament. He says this, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands. Your peace would have been like a river. Your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You see, what the prophet Isaiah was communicating there is that this is God's intent, is that all of his word, it's for our benefit. It's for our own good. And if we would just take it and recognize it and run with it, with that thought in mind, then we're going to be able to experience life the way God intended all along for us to experience life because God has always had our best interests in mind. And that very much fits with this whole idea of experiencing joy, joy to the max, joy in all of its fullness. You know, sooner or later, people engage in a quest of trying to fill their life, trying to fill the emptiness or that that void that they feel inside their life. The problem is so many times people are looking in all the wrong places. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes was all about. You know, in his search um, in Ecclesiastes, you know, he, he thinks it has to do with relationships, bouncing from one relationship to another, one woman after another or multiple ones at a time, thinking that that's going to bring the happiness to life and realize that it never. Thought that it was found in money. That didn't prove true. Thought that it was found in big achievements, you know, big building projects and stuff like that. Found that that wasn't true. Thought that it was found in pleasure-seeking, entertainment, stuff along, along those lines. Found that that wasn't true. The problem in Ecclesiastes where, you know, he keeps coming up with this conclusion saying meaningless, meaningless, like chasing after the wind is that other phrase that he talks about his search being under the sun. And that was the problem. He was leaving the Lord out of the equation. And so, yeah, he was always going to come up short. He was never going to experience what could bring the fullness of life. Uh, to realization in his life. It's like trying to be satisfied, you know, trying to satisfy your appetite with junk food. You know how that works. It doesn't work. Maybe at the time that you're tasting it, your taste buds are saying, yay, you know, but just moments later, yeah, you don't feel so good. You know, and that's exactly, you know, the way this works in life. When people try to find a way to fill their life, to fill the void in their life, but yet they leave the Lord out of the equation. Well, Jesus says right here, I'm telling you all this so you can experience it, the fullness of my joy in your life. Here's a fourth reason, so you'll glorify God. And isn't this our ultimate purpose, after all, to glorify God? Verse 8 says, Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And if you will remain in the vine, you will produce fruit. And God will be glorified. 
There's multiple passages that talk about, you know, that this is what we're all about. We are to be bringing glory to God. Paul talked about it in his first letter to the church in Corinth that we've been bought at a price. Therefore, we should be glorifying God in our body. Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that we should let our light shine before others so, so that other people can see our good deeds and glorify um, your Father who is in heaven. This is what our lives are to be all about. This is the very purpose of our life. It's not about you. It never has been about you. Ultimately, it's not about me. It's not about, you know, how well-to-do we can be. It's not about how big of a following we can uh, create. It's not about how successful or how smart, or how good-looking, or whatever. It's not about us. It's always been about him. And that's what this passage is saying, is that when you remain in the vine, that's when you're going to be hitting your stride, and you're going to be accomplishing the very thing you were created for. And that is bringing glory to God. But all of that is contingent on staying connected. You've got to stay connected. Thus the emphasis, nine or ten times, he says remain, remain, or abide, depending on which translation you're looking at. But you see what the passage is saying. It's saying that, that when you are connected to Christ, then you will become fruitful. And what will end up happening is, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, God will prune you so that you can become even more fruitful. And God will end up receiving the glory from that. Your prayer lives will become more effective. And as an end result, joy will be filling your life. You see, it's a progression of thought that Jesus is sharing all the way through that passage. But it all starts with being connected to Christ. Everything hinges on that. Your focus is on remaining in Jesus. That's what a branch, that's the business of a branch. Stay connected. You don't need to worry about trying to force out the fruit in your life. That's inevitable. It's going to happen if you're remaining in Christ. The Spirit of God will produce the fruit. You just kind of keep in step with the Spirit. Just cooperate with what he is, what he is doing in your life. Okay, so those are the benefits. Now, how? How do we stay connected? Now, before I get into this, there is something I need to clear up because I'm assuming something that I shouldn't assume. Before you can stay connected, you need to be connected. That may sound like a pretty trivial splitting hairs sort of thing, but it, it, trust me, that's not. Before you can stay connected, you need to be connected. One of the passages that comes to my mind is the way John opened his gospel in verse 10 and 11. Um, he starts into this thought. He, talking about Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and that's a reference to the Jewish people. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. All right, so he came to his own people, but they didn't. Now, that's not saying every single one of them rejected him. It's not saying that. But it's saying, by and large, they didn't embrace him. It continues. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
You see, what, what John starts out his whole gospel with is he's saying Jesus came. He came to his own, but even his own, by and large, didn't receive him. But to those that did receive him, they became part of God's family. So we can't just assume, well, you know, I was born in America. You know, I'm, an, a Christ, I'm a Christian. I try to live a good life. You can't just make some kind of an assumption just saying, well, you know, my mom took me to church when I was a kid. You can't just make this kind of an assumption and just say, well, you know, yeah, this I'm, I'm in Christ. You know, because I was born in America and because I remember going to church when I was a little kid. No. What this passage of Scripture is saying is that there needs to be a decision that you have made, a decision to embrace Christ, to receive him. As good as your, your mom or your dad's intentions were when you were young, I mean, kudos to them for the efforts that they made, but they could not make that decision for you. You may be in a marriage now and your spouse, you know, may be a very godly person and uh, trying to influence you and, and bribing you to come to church, you know, with her or with him. And, and, uh, and so, you know, here you are. Um, but I mean, kudos for their desire to want you to be here and for what they ultimately desire, but they cannot make the decision for you. It ultimately comes down to each person has to make the, the, that decision for themselves. So that's why I say that it's premature for me just to assume, okay, well, everyone here and everyone that's going to be tuning in online and listening to this, then uh, what we need to, to focus on is how to stay connected when the reality of the matter is um, there's actually something else that needs to happen first for some. They need to get connected. So if you have never made that decision yourself in a personal way, you know, that, that's where I would exhort you to really give that consideration because that's what needs to happen. You know, talk to me, pull one of the other pastors aside, and we would love to be able to kind of walk you through that and pray with you and, and, and lead you in that direction because it is the most important decision you will make in your entire life. More important than anything else, okay? All right, we're on the same page, right? You need to be connected to begin with. All right, so, so being connected, how do you stay connected? And I want to talk about that in the remainder of our time. My first inclination was to come up with a nice, uh, neat little list of five happy hops to a connected life with Christ, you know, and, and little catchy phrases and stuff like that. It would involve things like fellowship as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, and I would insert things like that. And actually, my mind started going down that path in preparation for this message, but then it occurred to me. Why am I trying to reinvent the wheel? John has already talked about this in his writings in Scripture. Let me explain. The word that I kept emphasizing when I was reading through John 15, that in this translation is translated remain. If you're in other translations, maybe it's the word abide. That word in the Greek is the word minnow. Sounds like a little fish, right? That's not the way it's spelled, but that's the way you pronounce it. Minnow. And that word keeps popping up over and over in Jesus' allegory of the vine and the branches. Well, the reality of the matter is that word is found 120 times in the New Testament. All right? So it's, it's found in multiple places. And John, in his writings, accounts for right near 50% of those times. This is a significant theme for John. Sometimes it's translated remain, sometimes abide, sometimes continue, sometimes dwell. But for 34 times in his gospel, John uses this word. For over 20 times in his letters, John uses this word. 
So what I want to do is I just want to show you, because of time, I just want to show you a handful to kind of get the ball rolling in your mind and to see some of the places and just let the Spirit open your eyes and take it from there, okay? So let's start. Let's, let's just focus on 1 John. 1 John is only five chapters long. I would encourage you, I put all these on the outline that is in the bulletin so you have them available to be able to use them in your devotions this week to go back to these passages. But by all means, don't limit your study to the five passages that I've got listed on your outline because there are multiple other times. Like I said, there's 20 times he's using this kind of terminology. And on addition to it, he keeps saying stuff like, you can know, you can know that you know Christ. You can know it this way. He's not even using the word minnow, but yet he's talking about the same concept overall. So 1 John is a great book to study about, about what being in Christ, what it entails, okay? All right, so let me read this one. Chapter 2, starting in verse 3. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him. That's a good way to begin it in view of what I just said. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, Truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains, there's the word minnow, in him should walk just as Jesus walked. So staying in Christ, remaining in Christ, what does that look like? It looks like living a life that resembles the life Jesus lived. Walking like he did. Not allowing his teaching to go in, in one ear and out the other, but actually obeying it. That, that's, that's what John, early on in his writing, he establishes. That our life resembles Jesus' life. What did Peter say last week we talked about? Oh, Jesus, Cornelius, you want to? Oh, he went around doing good. That should be a description of your life if you are staying in Christ, if you're remaining in Christ. Then someone who has been observing your life ought to be able to say, you know, that person is up to a lot of good. <laughs> they go around doing good. Man, that's a great compliment because it reflects your Savior in you. Let me show you another one later in that same chapter, verse 24. It says, what you have heard from the beginning must, there's the word minnow, remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you'll remain in the Son and in the Father. Okay, so this, this sounds important. So what did you hear in the beginning? What is that a reference to? It's talking about in the beginning of your journey with the Lord, right? The beginning of your whole relationship with him. What you heard was the gospel, the gospel message. And it's saying that this gospel that you heard in the beginning, man, you got to stay with that. What you embraced early on needs to be what you're embracing today. Yeah, it might have been 15 years ago. For some of you in here, it might have been 40 or 50 years ago. But you're still embracing it. It means that you're not becoming lackadaisical. You're not slacking off. And it's like, oh yeah, I used to be a lot more fired up about this in the past than what I am now. Wow, that ought to be a warning right there. Because that does not sound like that verse. If that would be a summary for any one of us, like, yeah, you know, I just don't get as fired up about this stuff as I used to. Oh, I still believe it, but take heed to the warning because that's what the Bible says. We need to cling to it like we did at the very beginning. 
What was that verse I think I talked about last Sunday? If not, it was the Sunday before. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Yeah. Yeah, if we're not clinging tightly to the gospel message like we once did, the drift is likely happening. And that is not good news. And that is not what remaining in Christ looks like. Here's another passage. 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins. And there is no sin in him. Everyone, here it is, minnow, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Okay, you're going to need to trust me here on something in, in what this passage is saying. Because on the surface, it almost makes it sound like you need to be living a perfect life, a sin-free life. But that's not exactly what this is saying. As a matter of fact, earlier in the book, in 1 John chapter 1, one of the last verses, it says that if we claim, if we say we have no sin, then we're liars and we're calling him a liar. Okay, so this verse is not saying you have got to live a perfect life, you know, and that's what everyone who remains in him is doing. They do not sin anymore. They're living a perfect life. That is not what it is saying. As remarkable as it is for me to say this, and I like the NIV. I just like some of these other translations a little bit better. One of the best translations on verse 6 is the NIV. Because in the NIV, it says everyone who remains in him does not continue on in sin. And that is the thought. The verb tense there is, it's the present tense. And what that means is, is like you sin and you keep on sinning. That, that sin is a pattern of behavior in your life. And that's what this passage is saying. That if you are staying in Christ, if you're remaining in Christ, then you're not letting a, a particular sin be a pattern of behavior because you're growing beyond that. that that's part of the past. Off with the old, on with the new. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to live perfect. You're still going to stub your toe. You're still going to fall on your face now and then. I mean, that is still going to happen. But this whole holiness, sanctification work that the Spirit is bringing to pass in your life, it is happening if you're remaining in Him. And so patterns of behavior, they are shifting for the good, not for the bad. All right? All right, here's another one at the end of that chapter. The one who keeps His commands remains in Him, and He in Him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he's given us. So this is similar to the first one we looked at in chapter 2, um, is that, uh, that of obedience. That remaining in Christ is that, you know, you don't look at the Bible um, with an attitude of take it or leave it. If, if, if that is the kind of attitude you have about the Bible, you're reading something in the Bible and saying, ah, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't think so. You know, but I did like what we talked about yesterday. You know, if, if that's the kind of attitude, there's a problem there. There's a problem. Um, because, because obedience is very much a part of what remaining in him looks like. That we take it, we take it to heart. His word doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. Okay, now, and let's look at this last chapter, or... The last chapter I'm going to show you, there's actually five chapters here. But uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 kind of set the tone of what the longer text is talking about. So let me read those two verses. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. All right, the word minnow isn't found there. 
But yet, he's using the term knows, know, and that's a similar theme all the way through 1 John, which is a good part of the study. But it's talking here about love. The word love that is used is the word agape every time in what I just read. It's agape. It's not talking about romantic love. It's not talking about, um, you know, even a feelings-oriented, you know, type of love. It's talking about the kind of love where you put other people's interests above and beyond your own, the kind of love where you're even willing to go out of your way and to make some sacrifices on behalf of others. That's the kind of love that is being talked about there. Okay, now with that thought, go down to verse 13. It says, this is how we know that we minnow, that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us assurance to us from his spirit and we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. So what chapter 4 is talking about is kind of a combination of confessing Christ. Confessing is not an heiress sort of thing, a one time and you're done sort of thing, but it's an ongoing thing um, that you, you do regularly. You're professing your faith in Christ. You don't, you don't miss the opportunity to be able to share that. Um, but it's also talking about this, this thing called agape love. And agape love is proof positive that there's something serious going on in your connection with the Lord. If you've got agape love going on and you're putting other people's needs before your own, and even if you don't feel it, you're still reaching out and you're doing, you know, what you know people around you need, um, that's an indication that you really are remaining in Christ, that you really are remaining attached to him. All right, so we're, we're out of time, you know, in developing that. But 1 John, uh, there's multiple other passages, so I would seriously encourage you to spend some more time, you know, studying that. I, I, I want to conclude um, as we prepare for our time of communion by, by just, you know, saying this. For those of you who are in Christ, you are in the vine, you're connected, you somewhere along the line, made that decision. I just want to exhort you, be diligent to remain in him. And that is what you're commanded to do. That's an imperative in scripture. You need, I need to work on that connection to make sure that connection is there. Don't take for granted the connection you have with Christ. No matter how genuine that conversion experience may have felt back six years ago or 60 years ago, don't just assume and take it for granted. You know, I think back to when I first came to Christ, and that was a lot of years ago, and there were some other kids in the youth group, and everybody looked and sounded like they were fired up. Unfortunately, over the last 15, 20 years, you know, I've kind of crossed paths with some of them and, and uh, the appearance is they don't give God the time of day for some of them. And that connection to the Lord that seemed to be there many years ago, I just, I don't see any fruit of it. I went to Bible college um, late 70s, uh, early 80s. We had a lot. Of, we, we, we actually lived in a trailer house, you know, uh, down on campus. They got rid of all these trailer houses. But, uh, um, but it was a real blessing for us when we went to school. And we always had, you know, classmates come down um, to the trailer house and just hang out and, and stuff. And we had a lot of really meaningful relationships with uh, fellow students and, and good discussions, the kind of discussions that, that probably amaze you 
that college age young people have, you know, that are just fired up for the Lord. And, uh, you know, and, and it was cool. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I mean, it was that kind of thing that was happening. But that's been quite a few years ago. And unfortunately, I've seen in the last two or three years, I've crossed paths with a few of those. And they just don't seem to have any fire for the Lord. Um, they don't seem to be involved or plugged in, connected to any church. And it's just out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. It's a very sad thing to see, especially when I could replay in my mind some of those conversations we had way back when. I spent 10 years of my life in Illinois in a church that uh, uh, I just owe a great deal of, of debt and gratitude to because it was during my two bouts with cancer. And, man, they really rallied around my young family back in those days. Um, loved the people there. I had the opportunity about four different times after I came here to start Crossroads to go back and to preach a few sermons at a time there and, uh, um, and just kind of get reconnected with people. And especially the last couple of times I went out there, there were faces I wasn't seeing. And so I asked, assuming they must have moved out of the area or something. And the kind of answers I was getting were very disheartening. That these were some of the people that, that were all gangbusters. They were all after it spiritually, you know, from my memory back in the time that I was there. But then over a series of years, you know, they just got distracted and involved in other things. And the spiritual part of their life just... Um, wasn't a priority anymore. Some of them fell back into some of the very same habits they had had before they came to Christ. And I tell you, that was a real burden, seeing that kind of stuff. If you stop and think about it, you probably can recall some of this in your own life. Don't just assume you're good to go. You made a decision for Christ you can relax and just coast. No. Don't just assume. You and I both are commanded. Stay connected to the vine. Do what you need to do. Study 1 John um, in, in all five chapters, and you're going to see multiple things beyond what I touched on that hopefully will light a fire under you. I want you to pray about that during this time of communion. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the allegory that Jesus taught so long ago that is still fresh and communicates so much. And Father, I pray that each and every one of us will really take it to heart how important it is that we stay connected. And Father, I pray that for your glory. For the good of your kingdom, I pray that our, connected will, our connection will stay strong. Thank you for loving us so much that you did something so incredible on our behalf. We celebrate that during this time of communion while we take the cup and the bread and we eat and we drink in memory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.